We hear a lot of talk about millennials in the motorcycle industry, or lack of them, I guess I should say. We hear talk about how they think differently and they, they want different things. Sometimes it sounds as if they're a different species. Today, I'm talking with two millennials that are traveling by motorcycle, how they travel, how they see things, and what the heck Area 51 in the desert has to do with motorcycling. Well, all that coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free, maxbmw.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cycle Pump. I'm Sam Manikin. Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Helga Pedro. Jocelyn Snow. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Thomas McCutcheon and Sam Poofel are best friends. They have been since Boy Scouts. They're rolling their way to Ushuaia on two different motorcycles. And I think they've had more than their share of adventure even so far, including a botched water scheme that had them driving through the desert in a rental truck looking to cash in on thirsty rebel conspiracy theorists. Ironically, later on, they're stopped themselves by locals that are demanding water. It's all about timing, isn't it? All right, my name is Shane Poofall. I am from Ashland, Wisconsin. Um, I have been riding motorcycles now for about six years. I did four years in the Navy right out of high school um, when I was 18 years old. Um, Then I got out of the Navy, went on a three-month motorcycle trip around the United States. After that, I worked as a uh, youth development specialist, a cook, and a maintenance supervisor. And now I pretty much ride motorcycles full-time been riding now for the last uh, nine months hey uh my name is thomas mccutcheon i'm from ashton wisconsin i'm 24 years old i have been riding motorcycles since i was 18 um i went to college in ashton wisconsin and decided to go on this trip after that shane and thomas welcome to adventure rider radio thanks for having us jim thank you jim you guys right now are, are hunkered down in argentina how did you get there what's this trip all about Well, we have spent the last eight months traveling through uh, 11 countries now, 12 countries now. 12 countries. 12 countries. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Getting all the way down here. Uh, Shane was in the Navy for four years, and I had the the, the privilege to go to college. And after college in the Navy, um, I really wanted to go out and go on a trip of some kind. I wasn't sure if it was going to be sailing or backpacking or anything like that. But Shane uh, brought up the idea of, you know, let's go on a motorcycle trip. We were both into bikes and 
um, it just clicked. We spent about two years planning it and it's been uh, a hell of an experience. Wow. Two years planning. So what, what exactly goes into planning that with this Shane? Well, we, like, like Thomas said, yeah, we kind of had the idea, um, while we were, yeah, we were <laughs> engaged in different enterprises. We weren't able to, um, do anything sort of like a big trip like this together or separately. So we spent two years planning it. That is essentially, it was, we got the idea for the trip and then we were like, okay, well, we need to get a motorcycle. That was, that was the first step. Thomas had a motorbike at the time, a, uh, Kawasaki Ninja 250. And, um, I had never even ridden a motorcycle. So I bought my first motorbike and learned how to ride it. And then Thomas bought his adventure bike. And then we spent the rest of the time, you know, reading what we could, learning what we could about the route, about the potential things that we might encounter on the trip and then sort of acquiring gear and psyching ourselves up for it and then going on the trip. What was your biggest concern over those two years that you're getting ready? Was it riding skills? Was it what you're packing, what you're taking, your bikes? Was it the route, the border crossings? What sort of gave you the most uh, sleepless nights, I guess? Wow. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest things was, um, I guess sort of just like the logistics and the legality of moving a motorbike through 15 or sorry, 12 different countries, um, border crossings, and then the whole Darien gap conundrum. Right. But we, when we got to it, it really just wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, it was just kind of a, uh, I, I mean, I speak Spanish fluently and um, well enough that I could help Thomas out with it. And it was really just kind of a walk in the park. You just show up with a motorcycle and a few hours later, you're you're through the border. That's it. You didn't book that in advance? You just sort of rocked up to the boat and said, here I am. I want to go. The stall rat? No, no. We, we did the um, Panama crossing on the wild card. It's a sailing ship that does um, motors that does back mostly backpackers, but they also allow motorcycles, um, between Panama and, uh, Cartagena, Colombia. Mm, wild card. So, so what is that? Talk about that. So the wild card is a 15 meter sailing ship captained by captain John. Um, but it's just a fantastic little sailing ship. You strap your bike to the front of it. <laughs> you and a bunch of uh, backpackers just kind of take a five-day trip from um, the edge of Panama. And then you go out and hang out in the San Blas Islands, which are bordering Panama and Colombia, um, for two or three days. And then it's another three-day sail all the way to get to Cartagena. So the same sort of thing is what the stall ride is by the sounds of it. It sounds very similar, but were you guys the only two motorcyclists on this boat? And no, actually we were, um, while we were doing the paperwork to get onto the, um, the wild card, which was a little bit short notice. We had emailed them a week prior and they usually ask for like a month in advance. Um, if you're trying to book your own trip, but they had passed, they had room and they said that there was one other motorcycle coming along with us. So we were at the office to get our bikes inspected by the Panamanian police and then get them cleared to leave the country. 
and we met another motorcyclist who was riding from Canada to Ushuaia, Argentina. He was, uh, his name was Laurent and he was from Belgium and he was on a 1150 GS. So you've got just what, then four bikes on, on the boat and a bunch of backpackers. How many, how many, three bikes. Okay. Three bikes. How many backpackers? There were 23 people total, including the crew. Whoa. Um, that's a lot of people. Yeah, it was, it was pretty. It was pretty full, and <laughs> the seas. The seas got a little rough there for a while. Uh, we had 12, 12 meter seas. No, no, no. Sorry, five meters. five meter seas. Mm. Five meter seas. I'm um, I'm curious as to what the backpackers thought of you, motorcyclists, because you're a bit of an anomaly um, just by the numbers on this, and the backpackers are. You know, it's it's a different style of travel. Were they interested in what you're doing? Did it sort of raise an eyebrow for them? Did you get people's, you know, sort of wheels turning? Did, did you get people looking at it and thinking, you know, I should do this? I mean, I guess it's just a, a kind of a travel style for preference. I mean, there's a, there's just like motorcyclists, there's every flavor of, of, of backpacker. There's the people who want to travel around places and have a good time and party and do that kind of thing. And then there's the, 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 the money pinchers, you know, who want to travel around and wear the same pair of boots until they fall off their feet. Um, <laughs> and we kind of ran into a couple of, a couple of different types of, uh, you know, individuals doing their thing. And, uh, you know, it's always a, you, you always kind of a curiosity to, uh, to someone who's used to waiting at a bus terminal or used to waiting for an airplane to show up or something. And, and it's interesting to, to communicate, um, with travelers in that method because they, one thing we'd never do is we never have to wait at a bus terminal or we never have to catch a plane. You know, we're, we're very, uh, insulated from the travel necessities of everyone else, so to speak. I'm just wondering if there's any sort of, um, I don't know, like disdain when they look at you and think that, well, you're not really doing it right because <laughs> you're riding a motorcycle. It's it's too easy. I mean, because we always look at it and think, well, you're, the backpackers are stuck on a bus and they're they're forced to, like you said, wait at a bus stop and do those sorts of things. And as is motorcyclists, you can just go where you want, when you want. But is there is it the other view from from their perspective? I wonder, did they come to you and sort of say to you that, well, you're you're not really experiencing things? No, they, they <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> at, le- at least in, in my experience, it's, it, it's mostly just like, you know, wow, you got, you got the bugs in your teeth for the last 34,000 miles. You know, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a respect there. You know, it's, it's nice. <laughs> right. Except you've got face shields. So you don't really have bugs in your teeth, but right. no. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I get it. Okay. I want to talk about your bikes. Um, what bikes you have. Shane, let's, let's start with you. I believe you're riding uh, the F800. Can you just talk a little bit about your bike and how you have it set up for the trip? Yeah, right. So I have, I am riding a 2011 BMW F800 GS. Um, and, um, I bought the bike in 2014. I bought it used. It was a Craigslist deal and it essentially already had everything on it. Um, that was a big selling point for me. Um, it already had the skid plate crash bars, headlight protector, um, pannier racks. There was really nothing I had to do to the bike after I bought it. Um, and, and I just rode it that way. Um, plus the extra gear just stock, um, for, for the whole trip around the United States where I had the, um, BMW panniers and then I destroyed the BMW panniers and swapped them out for a set of Moscow moto, uh, backcountry 35 panniers. 
and that's what I'm riding with now. You, you um, didn't mention anything about the trip around the, the around the states. Was that before this trip? Yeah, yeah. Before um, when I got out the Navy in 2018, I spent three months riding coast to coast and then around the West, um, just by myself on on the same bike that I am on. Uh, I took on the trip. Oh, see, you you got totally used to your F800 then long before you you departed for this trip. And even had yeah, a shakedown absolutely. because riding all over the place, I mean, you already knew what you liked about it, what, if anything needed to be changed, even your camping gear, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was a really good, um, like you said, shakedown and just sort of a break-in experience for me. And, uh, and that's really where I came to love motorcycle camping. And I was like, okay, I can do this pretty much indefinitely, you know, like after, after a trip, even of that, of that length, I, I just decided that like, I can ride until I run out of money, basically. <laughs> Thomas, uh, you're riding a KLR. Can you talk about your, uh, about your bike? Absolutely. So I'm riding a, a bona fide antique. It's a, it's a 1999 Gen 1 KLR 650 with just a crazy amount of modifications because, you know, your previous question you were asking about what gave me the most sleepless nights. And I, I kind of fell into that wormhole of like, oh, what do I need to fix? What do I need to modify? Like, will I be ready? And so I ended up really... <laughs> you, you, you went to the websites with a list of modifications you need to make your KLR, you know, I don't know, trail worthy, road worthy, travel worthy, or maybe KTM worthy. I'm not really sure what it is, but right. there's lists of mods and you probably went through and, and did most of them, did you? I I really haven't found anyone who's done as done as much and <laughs> and that's I mean that's not being facetious. It's got I mean I've, I modified the front forks, modified the front fairings so the wind goes over my head. It has a 28 liter IMS gas tank. It has a rejetted carb, a custom exhaust, uh, drilled air box. I built my own panniers for this trip. Custom mounted my own top box. I've got a brake reservoir protector. A skid plate, sergeant seat. Uh, I mean, there isn't the only component on this motorcycle that I didn't modify was the alternator. Um, <laughs> even you okay, know, the, okay. That, that's that's a <laughs> that's a lot of mods, no doubt. Um, custom panniers are these aluminum panniers? They're not. They're the soft bags. The two forty-five liter panniers that I built. Oh, you, um, you made those? I, you stitched them yourself. Well, I, I did. I, I well, Stitching, not quite, but so the way I built them was I used two 45-liter dry bag backpacks, which in hindsight were far too large. But again, when you're preparing for a trip like this, and this is the first camping trip I've been on. I mean, in a nine-month trip, you kind of, you don't know what to expect. So, I, so I, I gave myself way too much room, but two 45-liter dry bag backpacks cut down to just the dry bag. And then I used two-inch nylon webbing with an aluminum back plate um, to create a harness that holds each one in place on either side of my motorcycle. So what this does is it means that the panniers themselves can't wobble or fall out. And if I, I can't get my foot stuck under them, you know, with any, any easier than I could with any other soft pannier. And if I do damage them, um, it's just a matter of adjusting the straps till they're no longer damaged. Mm. So they're modular and I don't have to worry about them breaking. You've heard of Green Chili Adventure Gear, right? Because they, <laughs> I because have they make, on this very they make broadcast. <laughs> just the setup for you guys. is That's what Green Chili does. It's exactly the purpose is is taking something like dry bags and turning them into um, your luggage. That's that's exactly what you it know, is. You know, 
I actually heard about them on your show right after I purchased mine. Oh, right. I purchased the, the, the materials to make mine. But in hindsight, I probably should have gone with them. <laughs> now, you guys uh, obviously both chose soft luggage. Is that for a reason? Is, is that for, because you, you just mentioned, um, Thomas, that about, you know, getting your foot caught or anything. Was that part of your decision for the soft luggage for both of you? Well, yeah. Sure. I, um, like I said, I I had the, I bought the bike with the BMW aluminum panniers, mm -hmm. uh, just the stock ones that sort of fit around the exhaust on the bike. And I thought they were great until I started riding off road with them. And basically every time I would land on one side or the other, um, and I, I felt quite a bit, I'll admit my first, you know, my first couple weeks riding alone and, um, they, they just kept taking damage until they were barely usable. So they're getting smaller and smaller the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I got done with the trip and I had both of them. I had one, the, the latches on the lid had completely broken. So I was holding it shut with a strap. And then the other one was, or the latch that held it onto the pannier rack was pretty much destroyed. So I had to just push it on there and then ratchet it, ratchet it onto the bike. And, um, yeah, so, so after that I was like, I, I'm sure that they make better hard panniers, but I'm just not really interested. And I think that a soft pannier would be a lot more durable in the long run. Now you guys have known each other since you were kids. I, I believe you went to Boy Scouts together. Correct. We both made Eagle Scout together. Okay. So, so you, you've known each other for a long time. You, you're obviously very, very used to each other. You spent two years planning this trip. There's a lot of talking going on there. I have to ask, how does one end up riding an F800 GS and the other one end up on a KLR 650 <laughs> to totally different bikes? <laughs> well, I, I gotta say a lot of that, uh, is just, just straight up ignorance on my part. Um, <laughs> oh, hang on a second. You, you're oh, saying you're riding, no, no, you're riding a KLR because you, you don't know better. Well, it was more of a matter of when I, when I looked into the bike, it had everything and it still has a lot of things that I really appreciated. Like I can run it with no battery in it. I can push start it any circumstance, anytime, anywhere. Um, there's a lot of things about it. I like, but when I purchased the bike, I mean, I also got it for just a song. It was seventeen hundred U.S. dollars oh, wow. for, you know, a bike with a, a whole list of mods already on it, ready to go, just turnkey reliable. Um, but, you know, I really didn't consider that I would be riding with, a, you know, what's tantamount to a sport touring bike. I mean, the the BMW's got more than twice the horsepower, more than twice the torque. And it, it, it's just in a completely other class. And the K, I mean, the KLR was designed in 1986, I think. It's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's prehistoric. <laughs> I, I mean, I have to admit, I, I had an 06 KLR and I absolutely loved it. I still love the KLR. I'm a big fan of the KLR. I like the F800 as well. I like, I like both bikes. Just for this sort of trip, I was thinking that, you know, you'd, you'd maybe think of it in advance and say, okay, well, we're going to have the same bike so that if we have breakdowns or anything, did, did you guys think about that at all before you left? No, well, I think that the difference, the decision, I think that the difference in the decision between our bikes actually came from just personal preference. And the fact that when we did buy our motorbikes, we really had no influence over the other on which bike we were going to buy. Um, I bought my bike in South Carolina while I was stationed in Virginia. 
And Thomas drove about 100 miles north to Duluth to buy his KLR. And I think the only influence that I had on, I, I bought my bike first and then, um, he decided on that bike later. Um, and I think the only influence I had was probably that he was not going to buy a BMW because he didn't want to have the same bike as me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting, Jim, cause you talk about, you know, we've been friends for a long time. And I think one of the ways you keep that going is that you give each other enough space to do what we're going to, you know to do, to do what each other's going to do, you know? And so, uh, at least personally, I wanted the bike I could work on. I wanted a bike I could fix and, and believe me, I've fixed it. <laughs> I like so, that. Uh, I think, I think that's a really important thing. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta both, do, you know, do what you want to do in your own personal way. The KLR no doubt is much easier to repair. It's the type of thing that you, you can almost do anything with it at the side of the road within reason compared to the F800, which gets into, you know, a more, much more technical bike. Obviously the F800 is better on fuel than the KLR. Surprising because it's a bigger CC engine, but it's definitely better, a little bit better on fuel. Has there been an advantage or disadvantage for one or the other so far on the trip? Um, well, Thomas, you want to? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anything on blacktop, hands down, BMW is better. The, the F800 is just, it's just an outstanding mach- machine. And, and I, I've got a lot of experience looking at his taillight. Let me tell you. <laughs> Um, I'd say the, the, the KLR is a lot easier to pick up when it falls over. Uh, when it comes to like really, really technical maneuvering, the BMW is a pretty big bike. The KLR, you know, it's much narrower, um, of a motorcycle. It's a bit easier to, to navigate some of the more technical stuff, I think. But then again, like, I mean, if you're on any kind of reasonable dirt road or any kind of, I mean, twice the torque, twice the horsepower, the BMW's got it all day, every day. <laughs> I mean, it's not even a comparison. <laughs> so Thomas, the, the question here is, if you were to start again from now and you had your choice of bikes, would you look at the 800? Would you take that or would you go with the KLR again? I would go with like a Tenere. Um <laughs> You're like definitely going to be different. Like I said, not a BMW. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Something about the $90 oil change just turns me off pretty quick. Mm. And the parts, not to mention the expense of the parts right. when, you, when you break something, right. which which we're going to talk about because there are some parts that have been broken in the F800. I know that, that we're going to get to. Hey, how long is this trip for you guys, Thomas? Uh, this trip has been about eight and a half months so far, and eight- we're not... We're not even done yet. <laughs> Eight and a half months. Well, you're kind of stuck now, too. Is there a deadline on it? Is there a, a hard end to the trip? Nope. No hard end to it. Um, we planned for at least a year. We were going to be out doing this. We, we both quit our, quit our respective jobs. We saved up a little bit of money. Not nearly enough, you know, but a little. Um, and we decided that it'd be really nice to live without a live without some deadlines for a while, live without a punch clock. Um kind of go see the world while we could and uh, so i mean it's been eight and a half months and uh we're still going strong and how have you been traveling are you are you camping are you hoteling it are you doing a mix so it's been it's been a pretty good mix in the united states it was it was exclusively camping i mean we camped all the way um i mean yeah, guerrilla camping or, or stealth camping, you know, in the United States, you, you really can't, I can't afford to spend a hundred dollars a day on a hotel. No way. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then in Mexico, we camped most of the way. Uh, it wasn't until we got into like halfway through Guatemala that we started using hotels because the, when the price of a hotel could be like between 12 and $6 a night. Um, and, and given the, the population density in, in some places and you know, the inability to find a safe camping spot, uh, it just made more sense to do it that way. Well, I think you're in Mendoza right now in Argentina. Are, are you in a hotel or did you do something else while you're, while you're locked down? Well, well <laughs> the situation in Mendoza here is, is a bit unique and it's sort of, it sort of speaks to the spirit of the trip. It was really just evolving as it goes and then spur of the moment kind of thing. Um, we, we rode to Mendoza to do a chain and sprocket change. Um, I knew that I was going to need to change a chain and sprocket and we had called shops further South and nobody said that they had parts for it. So the BMW forced us to ride back to Mendoza. And then two days after we got here, they began to quarantine, um, and sort of lock down everything in Argentina. We were staying in a hostel for about $15 a night. And then we found out that the hostel and most of the hotels were closing. So we managed to snag an apartment um, on Airbnb for the same price we were staying at the hostel for. So we are now in an apartment in downtown Mendoza. We have been living here um, (laughs) pretty much indoors all day for the last week and a half now. Wow. So, and what we're talking about here is the the coronavirus um, pandemic and and the lockdown for that. Now for a route, have you stuck to the highways or do you look for the off the beaten path and what is the flavor of the trip? I mean, are you going after cultural things or certain landmarks or, or things that you wanted to see or experience on the way down? How do you work from day to day? Well, there was there was one cultural experience that we really couldn't I, I couldn't miss, and I dragged Shane to it. Did, did you did you see the the hype online about the Area Fifty One raid way back in September of last year? Raid? No, I didn't hear that. I didn't see that. <laughs> the Area Fifty One, yeah, <laughs> alien stock or the raid Area Fifty One event. There was a. An, an event posted on Facebook where the idea was to, to show up at Area 51 and uh, see. I mean, it was it was absolutely ludicrous, but the idea was to see if 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 enough people would show up if they'd be willing to uh, break into the military base located <laughs> at Area 51. Uh, <laughs> and wow, like two and a half million people ended up saying they were going to show up. Seriously, um, wow. Seriously, yeah. yeah. Now, now and, Area 51, uh, just before you go any further, Area 51 is what? It's in Rachel, Nevada. It's an Air Force base um, located in, in the, the middle of the desert in Arizona. Of the desert in, in Nevada. And what's there? Sorry, Nevada. Um, um, just, uh, allegedly an uh, uh, Air Force base and uh, a testing facility and one of the places in the world that's considered a hotspot for alien activity. I mean, I don't buy into such things, but just for the hype purposes. That's well, the, well, they have aliens there, don't they? Isn't that the, the thing? Don't they have some sort of aliens or crafts or spacecraft rather? That is right. That is the, uh, that is the myth. Yes. Okay. Allegedly. Allegedly. Of course. Of course. I mean, you know, okay. So go ahead now. So two and a half million or, or so people say they're going to go and you decide you want to go to this. Right. So yeah, I decided I wanted to go to this event just to just to see the kind of people who were going to show up. I mean, as a way of finding the most interesting people, it, it seemed like only the really 
the really rich in character were going to show up to this event. Um, so I was actually working my way down the Mississippi at the time, um, driving the motorcycle down the Mississippi. And I, we got, I got a hold of Shane who was in, uh, Texas and I was like, all right, you know, we got to get, we got to get there. Um, so I, I drove across Kansas in like two days and then we got to, uh, Las Vegas. We rented a U-Haul truck. We put the motorcycles in the back of a U-Haul truck. We went to Costco and bought four pallets of water. And we put four pallets in the back of this U-Haul truck. And we drove this U-Haul truck uh, 220 miles out into the desert. Something what's, like that. What's the water for? <laughs> so the Area 51, Area 51 event on Facebook uh, evolved into sort of this big... Um, a bunch of people signed up for it and then it evolved into a uh, festival. They, they decided to host a festival that they dubbed alien stock. And then this was going to be the first ever alien stock festival. Um, so there was going to be bands there, people, um, you know, just showing up to see these bands from Las Vegas and around the country. And they expected no less than 6,000 people to uh, show up in Rachel, Nevada, which is the village nearest to the main gate of Area 51. Um, so our plan was we, you know, we knew we were going out to the desert and we knew we were going to go to this festival that just happened. And uh, we figured there wasn't going to be a lot of planning and maybe we could make a little bit of money, make a little bit of trip money by going out there and selling water. I love it. Okay. We, we, we were trying to make money, Jim. Okay. <laughs> Don't be so sheepish about we, it. It's okay. We decided, <laughs> right, we, we, we decided that as far as schemes go, there, there, there might be a possibility this is a profitable one. Hey, it's Turns water. Out it wasn't. You know, if they're thirsty, it's water in the desert, right? right? I mean, you can't go wrong. I can. Uh, I'm totally with you. Okay, so so what happens? You're, you're, dri you're driving yeah. your rental vehicle out with two motorcycles and a ton of water. Right. I'm sure it wasn't entirely legal. Uh, There's a few tons of water, actually. <laughs> literally. <laughs> okay. Well, we we get there, and and it is like the only people who show up are the people who are survivalists preppers, uh, like true conspiracy theorists. And these people could have had this festival anytime, any place in any climate in the world and been completely prepared. It was amazing. Wow. <laughs> I mean, so, so, so we ended up, you know, not selling any water. We actually returned the water to Costco. Uh, it was hilarious. We got most of our money back. Wow. <laughs> but you, you, you asked about it, it, like, like we didn't plan going to this event before we left, but that was the kind of thing that I just couldn't turn down. I mean, what's the point of having freedom if you're not going to go use it? <laughs> so this was on this so, trip. This, this is really before, before you got out of the States. Right, oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. So um, we we're sort of jumping around all over the place. I know, and I, I know we talked about um, you. Um, you taking the the wild card across the the Darien Gap. So the one thing I asked about that, I, that we didn't quite get into there was: so what is the trip about? Is is it about, or or is it about anything? But I mean, do you are you interested in cultural things? Are you going for the ride? What is it? Yeah, to get back to your question on the route for the trip, I mean, as the navigator, I probably have the most information on that. Um, so we, we've we been traveling essentially from, from the start. Um, the point was to get to Argentina, to get to Ushuaia, the end of the world. Um, and 
I think the reason we chose that as a destination and then um, was to was basically because I know that I can ride a motorcycle, know that we can ride it for a long, long time. And um, so just to pick the point, the longest distance between two points on on one side of the globe and then just go there and see what there is to see in between. Um, as far as navigating, we've been more or less following the uh, Highway 1 and then the Ruta Cuarenta through Argentina. Um, but it, if we see anything interesting on the map, you know, we go out that way or a, a cool mountain pass or a lake that we wanted to see. Um, it, it's not really just hammering down the highway. It's, you know, we're meandering south. And if, if we see something neat, we stop. If we find a cool place, we stay there for a couple nights. And, and that, that's kind of the spirit of the trip, I think. So basically the, the Pan American and you're sort of uh, veering off from there every now and then as you, you see something you want to do. Are you, um, are you interested in riding dirt? Has that been a big part of what you do or is, does that come into the, into play at all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the, you know, the interesting thing about riding, um, especially in less developed countries is that you don't actually, you really have no idea what the road is going to look like, um, until you get there. I mean, you can see it on a map or a line on the GPS and it seems like a good idea. And then you realize that you're riding 70 miles down a dirt road or, a just a gravel washout for, for, you know, all day long. Um, and we, we're not really scared of dirt. We don't go looking for it, but we find it more than not. And we pick the right bikes for it. So we just, um, it's not really a problem for us. But I, I, I can think of a, a particular example. Um, there was a time in, in Guatemala, we were trying to get out of this, uh, little village and we we're trying to get to another little village to find a hotel. And, uh, we chose a route. Um, it was a very exciting route. It was supposed to be this little trail that goes up this mountain. We're like, okay, that looks good. So we get about halfway up this trail. And I mean, it is just a, like a phenomenally, uh, rough road. It's crazy. It's just, the angles are incredibly steep. The, the, the turns are unpredictable. I mean, it's very slow picking and, we didn't see a single person on motorcycle or by car on that road for like six hours. The only people there were locals who were getting to their farms and, and their houses via donkey. Um, so we, we were on a donkey road. <laughs> but these, these big, heavy, fully loaded adventure bikes, you know, the sun starts going down. And, you know, but it is part of the adventure because, I mean, that, that the locals didn't even use that road to commute. It was only the, the, the people who lived on that road specifically who ever used that road. So nobody's rolling wheels down this. It's all hooves. Right. It's all hooves. Wow. And here, here comes an antique KLR and a very heavy BMW. <laughs> I'm looking at a, a list that you guys gave me of broken parts and, um, and things that went wrong, really, with mechanically, I mean. Uh, when I look at it, it looks more to me like a, a list of something that a shop would might list if they'd say, well, we've covered this kind of repairs throughout the year. You guys have done it in what, about eight months or eight and a half months or something like this. You've got broken windshield, broken gauge cluster, broken mirror. Now, that's just, that's just the broken stuff I'm looking at, and there's more. Um, what, what happened here? This, this happened in, in what, Baja, Mexico? 
Yeah, Baja, Mexico. That was sort of a reckoning point for Thomas and I on the trip, I believe, both in our own different ways. Um, I experienced a crash in Baja, and um, Thomas blew out the rear shock on the KLR and then had to go back to California to fix it. Um, but we, it, we were riding separately at the time, um, just because of the, because of the scenario, I guess. Um, well, set it we up. what's the scenario? Ride. So we had met two riders in, while we were living in California, um, we met these two guys named Mike and Greg and they were, um, older than us uh, they were experienced riders and they decided that, and they were, they were experienced riders in Baja. They'd been riding Baja their whole lives. Um, so they decided that they wanted to come with us and show us Mexico, um, at least as far as, uh, Alley Bay and, um, Baja California or Baja. And, um, so they took us from San Diego, uh, across the border in Picati and then, down this crazy beautiful dirt road and uh it was just right over the border in mexico and about like 30 kilometers 30 miles into this dirt road um i was riding in the front with greg greg was on a uh, husqvarna 701 leading um with no no panniers no gear no nothing and i was following him and then uh greg was in the rear with thomas uh, he was on his KDM 790 with about the same setup. And then Thomas was following him and about 30 miles into the dirt road, Thomas, you want to explain your, your part of the story? <laughs> well, it wasn't much, of, much, much of a part of a story because, uh, the KLR felt like it probably shouldn't. Um, but no, I was driving along this dirt road trying to keep up with everyone else and that just wasn't happening. So I was already in the back and then, uh, the, the rear shock just, uh, you know, disgorged its bowels all over the sand, lost all the gas in it, lost all the, the, uh, oil. Um, and so, uh, that was, a you know, we were close enough to California that I didn't want to try to fix the component in Mexico or further on down the road. I mean, you can still drive that bike without a shock, but it's not fun. Now, when um, you say without a shock, it, it's without any damping. Um, it's, it's basically like a pogo stick, isn't it? Correct. Correct. I should. Yeah, that's an excellent clarification. It's just you're just bouncing, and if you get used to it, it's fine. But at that point in the trip, I wasn't. So, <laughs> me and Mike uh, drove the bikes. He his 701 and my KLR back, and actually, uh, he drove my KLR back a little ways in the off road situation because I mean he was just a, a way better rider than I was, and um, I'd already dropped the bike like four or five times. Uh, which because I, I didn't realize the shock had blown out when it had, so I, it was just trying to ride it like like normal, and it just wasn't working. Oh, and it's throwing you off, right? Just bouncing me right off, yeah. and so we uh, we limped the bikes back to uh, California, and then uh, Shane and Greg went uh, 
went on and we caught up with them, caught up with them a little later. So you blew the shock out of your bike because you're basically riding it too hard. You've got a loaded bike and, and you're really beating it, keeping up to somebody on a, on a 701. Understandable. Okay. Right. So right. your, your a bike breaks. A 701, a 790 and a BMW GS800. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're going back to fix your bike. Yep. Shane, you keep going and you keep pushing it, chasing after the KTM 790. Correct. Yeah, Greg and I um, were riding, and Greg was leading because he knows Baja and he knew where he was going. Um, so we we had a good ride. We rode for um, two days, and then Thomas caught up with us a little bit later. Uh, we we stopped at Mike Sky Ranch. We rode all the way off road to Alley Bay, and it was on and off road. That's you know the way it is in Baja. And then, um, we were riding, uh, but then I, yeah. And then I had my crash on the second day and it was, it was really disheartening. We're going to take a quick break to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to us today. And, and, and we're very grateful to have these sponsors with us. Now, um, when we come back, we're going to get into the crash that really, really totaled this, this F 800 stay with us. IMS Products makes tough, reliable products, and that's obvious from the number of off-road racers that use their products. I mean, why does a racer choose a part for their bike? Because it's cheap or looks cute? No, a racer chooses parts that perform incredibly, that they do exactly what they're supposed to do, and on top of that, can withstand the toughest, roughest, most enduring conditions. A racer cannot afford a failure. And you know what? Neither can you. Not when it comes to foot pegs. This is one of those rare opportunities to run the best-in-class gear. IMS Products has a full line of motorcycle foot pegs designed specifically for adventure riders. Their ADV line are the large, comfortable pegs that, that add much-needed leverage to a large adventure bike. Great for fire roads, dirt roads. The Rally and Core Enduro pegs are for more aggressive riding. They've got a full line there. Drop by their website, have a look. It's imsproducts.com. And don't forget to mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. Get outfitted, get trained, get inspired. Overland Expo. It's the biggest event of its kind. Just a, um, a huge gathering of overlanders from around the world. Motorcycles, trucks, jeeps, you name it. If it's important in overlanding, it's going to be there. Now, there's a date change for one of the events. I'm going to, I'm going to get to that. But first, I want to talk to you about the number of these events. Overland Expo started 10 years ago with one event. And that was designed to, to inspire and sort of showcase overlanding in, in all its forms. And now, 10 years down the road, it's not just one. But it's three events across the U.S., beginning with Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona, then on to Overland Expo Mountain West in Loveland, Colorado, and then Overland Expo East in Arrington, Virginia. Three huge events with everything Overland, including a long list of exhibitors so that you can look at products, you can speak to the people behind the products. I always think shows are great for that. They've got training programs that you can sign up for to, to improve or learn skills and um, many, many presentations uh, by experienced travelers and authors and all kinds of things that will give you firsthand experience. They'll tell you how they did it. Um, they'll even answer questions. There's just a ton of stuff going on. I mean, so much really that you've got to choose what you want to see while you're there. There's that many things going on. Now, the date change because of what's happening here in the world right now, 
Overland Expo has changed the dates for Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona. They've moved that into the summertime to July 24 to 26, 2020, this year. So that's great. Overland Expo West in Loveland, Colorado is still August 28 to 30th, 2020. And then Overland Overland Expo East is coming in October 9 to 11th, 2020. That's in Arrington, Virginia. Now, look, for, for the tickets for this thing, you can't buy them at the gate. You have to buy them online before you go. You got to buy them. And there's there's sort of a different kinds of tickets that you can get, whether you want to camp there or how you want to do it. So you have to go to their website, have a look, decide what you want, and get your ticket. But get it online. And don't forget, when you're dealing with them, anytime, even just looking around, let them know. You heard it on Adventure Rider Radio. So the website is overlandexpo.com. Wow. Okay. So set this up and talk about this crash. So it was, it was our second day riding in Baja and I was keeping up with Greg pretty well. Um, I, at least I thought so. Um, like I said, he was on a brand new 790. It's a beautiful machine and it's, it's just a beast off road. I mean, there's, there's no comparison. There's uh, in my mind to another adventure bike like that off road. Um, and, and Greg is just a, is an incredibly experienced rider. I mean, he was, uh, you could have taught me anything about riding motorcycles and I would have believed him. Um, and so he was leading and doing, d- keeping a pretty good pace. And he was, uh, navigating with his GPS. Um, we were on our way to the campsite for that night and we were on a, a pretty straight stretch of gravel. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of embarrassing to say this, but it was, it was really just kind of a straight road that I ended up crashing and uh, nearly totaling my bike on. Um, it was, it was a straight stretch of gravel road, um, you know, about a car length wide with, um, it was, it was kind of like golf ball size gravel, really big, heavy stuff. And then, um, and then was just basically bushes and cactuses on either side. Um, and I was riding pretty fast following Greg. He was a little bit ahead of me and, um, probably about like 40 miles an hour. And I think what happened was I just sort of looked to one side of the road and then drifted across the center of it. And the center of this particular road, it was, it was, like I said, this golf ball sized gravel. And there was a big mound of this gravel in the middle of it with ruts on either side. So as I crossed that mound, uh, you know, my front tire squabbled in the loose stuff and then I tried to recover it. And then I just ended up going lock to lock and, um, actually high siding off of the bike as it landed on the uh, right side. Mm, that's horrible. The, the worst is the high side, isn't it? Where it, you end up flipping over and doing all kinds of damage. So what was it like for you though? I mean, you, you get thrown off the bike there first and, and, and you hit the ground. What do you like? Yeah, it was, um, it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty intense experience for me, I guess. I mean, I was in, in situations like this, in, I mean, I've been in situations like that before, crashed skiing or on my on a motorcycle before. But, uh, you know, you just have to – the first thing you do is you, you assess yourself and you got to like, okay, I have two hands. I can still see. I have a head. Um, let's try and stand up. I got on my feet and I, I could tell that um, both of my legs were working. My feet probably weren't broken. Um, and so then I'm fine. And then I turned around and look at the bike and the bike was on its side, 
off the trail in sort of like pushed into a cactus and it looked really bad. It was, I mean, there was parts everywhere. There was, um, the pannier on that side, on the side that it fell on had sheared off the Moscow moto pannier, like I said. Um, and I was, I was pretty defeated in that moment, just looking at my motorbike on the side of the road. Um, I really wasn't sure whether or not the bike was going to start, uh, whether or not the bike was going to go on. And, and I guess there was a little bit of trauma really from my, my first motorcycle because I, I had actually owned a, a BMW 650 GS before the 800 and that was the bike I planned on going on the trip with. And after three months of riding it, um, I, I crashed it in South Carolina and totaled it. And, and that was the end of the line. So I thought, you know, like this, this could be it, this, this, you know, flashbacks and, you know, the trauma from that previous scenario, like this, this could be the end of this bike and the end of this trip, you know? What was the previous, um, um, accident, the previous crash you had, was it, was it a single vehicle, just you on your bike? Um, yeah, yeah, more or less. I, I could explain that one in detail if you wanted. Um, but yeah, more or less, I, I was on the, I was driving on the highway in South Carolina and I was, um, forced off the road by a driver who was changing lanes and didn't notice me. And then, um, as I was riding on the shoulder at about 60 miles an hour, um, I tried to get back onto the highway and then the front tire was on the pavement. The back tire was on the gravel and I just Uh, slipped out and yeah, finished it. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that'd be that really shake up, especially so close together. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and just at the beginning of the trip too. Oh, I mean, yeah. you got to think that we'd we'd only been riding for about two months. I mean, we we just we just crossed the border into Mexico. This was our first country, and it was looking like the trip might be over before it starts. What what sort of damage were you looking at? Um. So. When I, you know, we took stock of the bike and uh, the actual, the the assessment was uh, the windshield was broken, um, just kind of snapped off. Um, The gauge cluster with the neutral indicator and the um, speedometer and everything on it was broken um, and was just sort of hanging there. The the handlebars were still straight. Um, but what had happened was I think some sort of the impact just sort of like swiped everything off the top of the handlebars. So I was riding with my, my Garmin, a GoPro mounted to the handlebars and then a double take mirror on the other side. And all of that had broken off. Um, the, the mount for the Garmin was destroyed. The screen for the inReach, the Garmin inReach was cracked, but the, the GPS still worked. Thankfully, um, I cracked the screen on my GoPro and basically totaled that. Uh, the double take mirror was broken and totaled. Um, and then the front brake reservoir, which is on the handlebars on the 800, was torn off and basically destroyed. So, and my hula girl, I had a little hula girl that was mounted to the, uh, right above the dash. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a, (laughs) it was a big traumatic experience for me, you know? (laughs) So at this point, are are you thinking that's it? The the trip is over? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of things going through my head in that moment, Jim. And, uh, you know, sort of like 
because I was completely alone. Mike, or sorry, Greg, who was riding ahead of me, had kept riding. He didn't see the crash. And then he ended up turning around and looping back to find me a little while later. Uh, I can't tell you how long I was standing there, but I, yeah, I was, you know, at first I was just thinking like, okay. Um, and then, you know, just the panic of like, maybe, yeah, what if the bike doesn't start? What if I have to, you know, like get a ride back to California, you know, and then, and, and sort of just coming to terms with like, if the trip is over right now, what then, you know? Um, and, and then once we, once Greg turned around and came back, you know, I'd kind of gotten myself together and, um, he, he asked me, are you laughing or are you crying? Because that's, that's what I was doing when he, when he showed up. Um, and so we, we picked the bike back up and we started it and, and Greg was super helpful. I mean, he, he's, I'm sure he's seen this kind of thing before and he was just nothing but compassionate, um, in that situation. God bless him. Um, but I think that, so we, we picked the bike up and he was like, okay, you think you can ride it? And, and in that moment, you know, like I think with his confidence and, um, sort of reassurance, I, I just decided like, okay, I'm going to ride it. And if, if I can ride it today and we can make it to the campsite, then, then we, you know, we made it through today. And then if I can ride it tomorrow morning, then I'm just going to keep riding it. And, and the trip's not over. And that was, uh, that was kind of where we just, where I decided that the trip, the trips can't be over. It's not over yet. So the crash, was it because of you are going too fast or was it just one of those things where you just looked away and you know, it's, it's one of those things that happened. Um, I think, yeah, I think it could have happened to anyone. Um, it was, it was a pretty, um, yeah, it, it was a chance situation, but I, I was also going too fast. I mean, if for the, the difference between riding, you know, your, your adventure bike or your dirt bike as fast as you can off road on a weekend ride and riding your fully loaded adventure bike with basically your house on the back of it is that if, if you crash, you know, there's a lot more consequences. And, and at that time I really hadn't, I guess I hadn't like thought about that. And after that, I, I think I have learned to ride a lot more, um, cautiously and, um, a lot more in control, uh, when, <laughs> when I'm riding my bike on or off road, mm. Yeah, I mean, with the weight of your gear on it, the, the bike handle is completely different. It's slower to, to respond. It's, it's more apt to keep going in one direction when you have a problem. So certainly makes a huge difference when you have a loaded bike uh, compared to a, just a, a bike with a rider on it for something like that. So now in, in the long run, so do you end up buying a whole bunch of new parts for it? Because you are riding the F800 and this stuff's going to cost a small fortune. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, after... After getting back to the camp and rationalizing it and looking at all the things that were broken, um, I sort of guesstimated that it would be like six, seven thousand dollars to replace all the things that were broken on it. And um, that was, you know, all the money we had left for the trip. So there's no way that was going to happen. And but it did still ride. Um, we managed to connect the gauge cluster and then epoxy it back onto the bike. So it was, so I still had a neutral indicator gas gauge. Um, the speedometer was broken and it still is, but, um, I know how many miles are on the bike at least. 
and then um and then everything else we just sort of we just sort of found parts and put them on as we went um we we replaced a brake reservoir that was one of the first things we patched it with super glue and baking soda or or i should say we a mechanic in mexico um helped us with that one because i had never heard of that method before well, yeah you're gonna have to and, talk about baking soda what, what does that do for you I, I believe, and Thomas might know more about this, but there's some sort of a chemical reaction that the superglue has. Yeah, he, he <laughs> by, by, we, we were in Baja and this mechanic, uh, he's like, yeah, I can fix it. And so he pulls out superglue and baking soda, fills the cracks with the baking soda and uses the superglue as a bonding agent. And because the superglue is a CT glue, it doesn't break down in contact with the brake fluid. Um, so basically, yeah, I mean, it, it held up for a while and wow. as far as like a, you know, a 60 peso fix, it worked out pretty well. Wow. That's interesting. So the baking soda, I guess it, it fills the gap because with super glue, it has to be pushed right tight together. And I guess the baking soda sort of Correct. helps fill the gap. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I guess he just sort of used it as like a structural material to yeah. fill in the holes where there was no more plastic. That's interesting. So um, as, as far as rest of parts, you, you just sort of replaced them as you found stuff as you continued to ride on your adventure. Yeah, yeah. I actually rode with a broken windshield and most of my photos, um, I mean, I'll send you some, were, <laughs> were just the bike with the broken windshield and then a piece of duct tape holding what was left of the windshield on. Um, it wasn't until Columbia that we found a motorcycle shop that had, they just had an F800 windshield in stock. So I was like, yeah, sure. I'll buy that. I'll put it on there. No problem. <laughs> yeah. I know you had a bunch of other things. Thomas, you had your alternator go, I think in Columbia. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. So this was this was a fantastic experience. Uh, breaking down. Wait a second. You're saying breaking down, having your alternator go was a fantastic experience. It really, really was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you sound so much like a traveler. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Uh, so I was in. Uh, I didn't. Wa I didn't salt proof my motorcycle enough for the sailing voyage, the five day sail from Panama to Colombia. I should have done more, uh, and I should have disconnected my battery, but because I didn't, the salt spray just completely fried my starter solenoid, toasted it like popcorn. Um, so the bike, bike wouldn't start. And also my radiator cooling fan, which I have a, a manual on off switch for, um, was full of salt residue and wasn't going to run. So the bike would overheat and I had to start it by shoving a knife between the starter solenoid connections and just rough starting it. So uh, Shane went off to went to Bogota before I did. So then I stayed and found a mechanic who was able to replace my starter solenoid with one off a 125cc scooter. And so we got that taken care of. And then we got the cooling fan taken apart, put back together, running properly. All right, good to go. I think I'm good to go, right? So I start driving from uh, Cartagena to Colombia, and I... I get about three or four hours in and I, I pull over to adjust something on my stunner and all of a sudden the bike won't run at idle. Like won't run at idle at all. Uh, so I'm on the side of the road. I'm by myself. Uh, I don't, I don't speak Spanish very well. I mean, I can, I probably have a vocabulary of like 30 words. 
Um, I'm uh, outside this industrial town in Colombia. And this guy walks up to me. We start doing a mix between grunting and pointing and fiddling around with Google Translate. And eventually he indicates like, yeah, just follow me into town. I'll take you to a mechanic. So I, I start the bike, put it in, uh, put the choke all the way down and then put it in second gear. And as long as I don't mess with anything, I can limp down the road. So I get to this mechanic. He fiddles around with the bike for a while. Um, he thinks that it's bad fuel from the, uh, the sailing voyage. So he drains the float bowl in the carburetor. Bike starts running again. He won't accept any money to fix it. He just wants to ride my motorcycle around the block. So <laughs> it's this mechanic. Uh, he jumps on the back of it. it. You know, I'm like, all right, go for it, man. And, you know, it's one of those things where you just really learn to trust people. I mean, because mm-hmm. this said every, every document, every document, every piece of paper that was important to me was on the back of the bike. Drives around the block. He's big smile on his face. His whole family gets to take pictures. Fantastic. So I'm back on the road. Uh, I get back on the road and I'm driving and there's a highway called Highway 90 that goes between Cartagena and Santa Marta. And on it, there is a fishing village called Tessajera. Tessajera, I think is how it's pronounced. T-A-S-A-J-E-R-A. However, there's also uh, living quarters and, you know, like, people who live along this entire highway because on one side of it, on the Columbia side of it, there's salt marsh for like 40 miles, this massive salt marsh. And on, you know, the coast on the ocean side, it's just ocean. So there's really only about a 300, 400 yard stretch of land going for quite a few kilometers. Um, you're in about as middle of nowhere as you can go. And the people who live there, uh, make their money primarily off fishing fish farming, which is they take like chicken wire or uh, something like that, put it in the water and start catching fish and putting them into these little pens until they breed and then now they're a farmer. Um, or salt harvesting where they, they scrape salt off of, uh, you know, off of some of the dried up beds and then sell salt. So it's a pretty economically recessed region. Um, I'm driving, uh, you know, I don't know that the bike's going to run if I stop. So my objective is to just get as many, like, just go. Um, it, was it not running right at this point? Like, did, did it start acting up again? It did. It did. So there was a, there was a, a toll booth. Um, and in Columbia, they all have bypasses for motorcycles, so you don't have to pay tolls. Um, but a toll booth uh, that I slowed down to go through the bypass, and then the bike just killed itself, died. And it was about eight at night. It was already dark out. So I'm parked um, well outside of this fishing village and very much in a part of this highway that is it, it occupied by um, people who aren't allowed to live anywhere else, so to speak. Or, or you know, like perhaps they're, uh, you know, like brand new immigrants from other parts of, other parts of uh, South America or, you know, they... They don't really have anything to work with, so they, they live here between the salt marsh and the coast on this tiny strip of land that no one no one fights over. And so I'm over there just just not knowing how to speak Spanish, not you know, and I'm fiddling with my bike trying to get it working. And these kids start walking by. These young these young guys, these middle-aged guys and these kids, and they all start walking by and then they get a little bolder and they walk closer. 
And pretty soon one of them comes up to me and that's like the, the moment that everyone decides they can come talk to me. And so now I've got like, like 18, 18, 20, 20 kids between the age, or kids and men between the ages of like 30 years old and 10 years old who are all doing their best to communicate to me how I should fix my motorcycle in Spanish, uh, <laughs> which of course I don't speak. So we, we play with it. Uh, I, I drain the float bowl again. Uh, I get, I get it, I get it running again a little bit. And then, uh, I asked them if there's a hotel nearby, anything like that. Um, and then this, this wave of humanity guides me deeper into the salt marsh down these little roads until I find, they take me to a truck, a truck stop hotel uh, restaurant place where I could get uh, a massive plate of rice and bananas and fish for like a dollar and I could stay the night for six dollars. So I stayed the night, figured it was a good idea. Um, the next morning I get up to start my bike and the bike just won't go. It won't go at all. And my, my friends from the night before show up and then, you know, I have a, a big crowd trying to help me push out this motorcycle, you know, in this, in, <laughs> in this crazy like shanty town, you know, of people, you know, it's kind of like the Island of lost toys. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's just a, a really, a really unique place. Um, and so far, I mean, everyone was just outstanding. I mean, I'm, I'm a stranger in a strange land here. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't have any resources and everyone's just doing their best to help me. So there's another group of people and they're, they're, they're about every like 60, a hundred yards down this road is like, there'll be an air compressor kind of with a bunch of tools and a couple of dudes sitting underneath like a bamboo shack. And what they do is they fix any cars that break down on the highway. So they make their entire living off fixing things that break down on the highway. And so these guys show up, like walk down to where I am. I'm like, oh yeah, we, we can fix it. You know, we, we you talk a little bit. Not talk, we grunt because I can, I, I'm not good at talking. We, we strip down the bike completely, like down to engine, wiring harness, and frame on the side of the road. And we cannot get it started for anything. And that's about four hours in the morning. And then they say, oh, we're, we're going to go find this other bike mechanic in the town. So we, we <laughs> they, they, they bring out this guy uh, and his son, and then they're like, oh, we, you, you know, you don't have enough spark. Um, so then they, we, we push my motorcycle down this highway. I've got a, a 125cc scooter with a, with, a, with a courageous young man on the back of it with his right foot out on my rear passenger peg, pushing me down the highway. I've left all of my possessions. I took my, my metal cable my, and bolted up all of my possessions so that uh, they wouldn't go anywhere and had my new friends at the mechanic's place, which, I mean, I'm just, again, just trusting people. The mechanic's place, this little bamboo hut, you know, with, with six dudes in it. Um, they're watching my stuff. We push the bike down to this guy's shop. This shop is, I mean, by shop, uh, it's a pole building, um, you know, with a dirt floor and everything like that, there isn't even electricity run to it. Like, uh, the way they get electricity to it is they, uh, climb up the electrical poles and steal electricity off the wires. Um, so they don't, (laughs) there's no outlets, there's no switches. That's not the way it works here. You know, he starts working on it and then he's like, okay, so the alternator is bad. We need to go get a new alternator. And the nearest place is we have to go, past the fishing village and onto the first mainland city 
near Santa Mata off of the Highway 90. And so that's an hour and 45 minutes by 100cc scooter. So me and the mechanic's son jump on one scooter and the mechanic and his buddy jump on another scooter. And then so we take off with my alternator in tow after pulling it out of the motorcycle. We go into the city. We cannot find for the life of us anyone who has an alternator that'll fit my bike. No way. It would be like weeks of shipping to get it there. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, all right, there's one more guy we can try. So we go to this, this, this mud hut and this shirtless guy like meets us at the door. He's super happy to see us, you know, like great, you know, like, like he, he obviously knows the mechanic a little bit. Um, and, and the mechanic hands him the alternator and he sits down on this little wooden stool. that's made out of, you know, like bits of pallet. And the brightest light in his shop was the sun coming through the door. Um, and that's what the stool was there for. If it was for examining stuff, you know, like getting the good, the good work light going. So he's looking at it, looking at it. And he's like, yeah, I can fix this alternator. Um, it's going to be a uh, hundred thousand Colombian. And, 100,000 Colombian is like 36 US. Um, (laughs) And I could tell by the way the mechanic and my posse had reacted and the way the guy had said it that he obviously thought this was a ridiculous amount. Like he expected me to bargain with him. You know, like, like, no way. So you know at this point you're you're sort of getting had. Well, it's, 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 it's the guy who's fixing the alternator thinks he's having me, but the alternator to fix it in the U.S. would be like 180 bucks. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, so I'm looking at a $36 price tag, you know, three days, three days ride from anywhere that has this part or a three-week stay in a fishing village, or I can spend $36 right now and fix it. <laughs> so but, I, I'm just like, yeah, absolutely. But you, know? you didn't try to talk it, him it down makes, at this point. No way. No, I want his undivided attention on fixing my alternator. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's worth it to me. Uh, so, I, you know, and, and, and as soon as I said yes, he's like, okay, you know, like drops everything. And so this guy, he fixes alternators by unraveling the wires off of uh, like the fans you set in the corner of a room that blow back and forth. And, and so he, he does it all by hand. He rewraps them entirely by hand. I mean, this guy was an artist working in a, in, in a mud hut and he just, he, you know, he, he did it. And He's so, taking the wires, uh, the wiring off round by round by hand, um, breaking through the shellac yes. and peeling it back to rewind it himself when he finds the break. Well, n- not, not just that. He, he takes the wires off of ventilation fans. So that's where he's getting the wire to work with. And then he completely unwraps the alternator in the offending location. In this case, it was my, uh, the two prongs of the, uh, the two prongs of the alternator that, that, that trigger my spark plug were what was broken. Um, and then he rewraps it using the wire off a ceiling fan. So, I mean, I mean like literally working with almost no resources. Um, and then like these guys drive me back to their, their shop. And then, they, you know, I stay at the hotel again that night, which is down the road. Um, Come back the next morning. He's like, all right, we got the alternator. We, and then we put it in and it doesn't work. So he's like, all right, we got to go back. He's going to fix it. And he, he did it for no charge, of course, because it didn't work the first time. And he had to do it all again? Well, <laughs> I, I didn't have to go along this time because uh, 
The other thing was I needed to find an ATM and there's no ATMs within forever. So the closest ATM is an hour and a half by scooter. So I had to go to this ATM the day before, which is, which is really the key. I mean, as long as you have a little bit of money in your pocket, you're never helpless. Uh, and so, yeah, it took, it took two days and I don't know, maybe like 15 people to fix my motorcycle. <laughs> because as soon as I got there, I mean, it was obvious that I was the most, the most, uh, the most interesting thing in this village for, for the time being. I mean, and every time we walked around, like there was a little grocery store and there wasn't a restaurant in this village, but one of the ladies of the village would make food and sell it. Like, uh, she'd make a little extra than her family could eat and then she'd sell it. So I ate at her table for two days. Um, and I mean, it was really just a fascinating window, uh, you know, a way of life that, that w- really worked well for these people. I mean, they, I mean, I was treated with, with a great deal of respect, you know, I, I don't speak the language I could have easily been taken advantage of. And I wasn't, um, you know, I felt nothing but welcome, uh, in this situation. And then <laughs> the two days later I, I got on the bike, everything was working again, kind of mostly. Uh, and I drove 1400 kilometers and 17 hours straight to get to Bogota. <laughs> and then, <laughs> Cause I wasn't about to stop. I mean, I didn't know, you know, if I let the bike cool down, maybe it doesn't start again, you know? So, uh, does, does your stator still work? Is it the same one? Well, actually I had the stator, uh, rebuilt by an actual shop in, uh, in Colombia. Yeah. In Bogota. Mm. I wasn't sure if the, uh, the $36 ceiling fan job would last, uh, all the way. My starter solenoid failed once more, so now I just completely bypassed it with some house wire, and it's been the most reliable thing I've ever done to that bike. So you're starting with a remote, what, like a light switch now? No, I just rubbed two wires together. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that's great. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I've done that for the last four countries. It works great. Is there no plans to change that to uh, to the, the... Oh, no, you you couldn't pay me to update that. No way, no way. Well, you know, you guys are, are both young. You're 24 years old, millennials. What, um, and Shane, maybe I'll throw this back to you. How do you think you see these, that you guys see the trip, um, what you're doing different than, than maybe people who are older? Well, Jim, I think that um, from, from our perspective, one of the things that we noticed right away when we started the trip was you know, we're traveling, um, pretty much, you know, seven days a week. Um, you know, you just wake up and you ride and then you stop for lunch somewhere and then you keep riding. Um, we noticed, especially in the United States that like the only people that we met on our trip when we were at camping spots or at parks and stuff like that were basically retired people. And, and that was kind of surprising for us and not, um, it shouldn't be too surprising, I guess, but it's just that like, there's not a lot of people our age, I think that are just out there doing this sort of thing. And, um, and it's really a shame, I think, because we, you know, like we have an opportunity at, at this stage in our lives, or at least it's the way that Thomas and I saw it, that like, we're not married. Um, we don't have any kids or commitments like that yet. 
Um, so as long as you have enough money and you have a place to come back to, you know, when the trip is over, like, just go for it, you know, like that, that's really been our, our perspective the whole time. And, and we meet young people, you know, that are traveling sometimes at hostels or, um, backpackers, like we mentioned before on the wild card. And, and and it is really cool to see, but I think that they're also, they're just living a completely different experience. I mean, they're going from one, um, hostel to another, you know, traveling with public transit, usually speaking English or their native tongue in, in countries where they don't speak that language. And it's, it's kind of surprising to see, you know, like most of the people our age doing this aren't, aren't really getting the same experience. Well, well, that's why I asked. That's why I was asking about the other, the backpackers on there. I was wondering, are they looking at you guys and saying, oh, I never thought about that. A motorcycle, what a great idea. I mean, why do you think people your age are not doing it? Why are millennials, or I hate to use that word because it, it seems to have a, a bit of a derogatory right, term sometimes, or, or at least reference. But I mean, why why do you think younger people are would rather backpack than ride a motorcycle? Um, you know, I think what really, what comes to mind for me, Jim, is that like a lot of people just don't, like, like you said, they don't realize that that's an option. Um, I mean, for us, you know, we were inspired in, in part by watching the long way around and just deciding that like, yeah, I can ride a motorcycle around the world. Like, let's go and do it. Um, I think a lot of people might watch a film like that or see, you know, some elderly BMW riders and be like, oh, well, I'll do that when I'm like 60, you know, or like I'm going to do that when I retire. And for us, it was just like, well, let's just do it now. You know, like, let's have our retirement trip now. And then, you know, we can do it again when we're 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. Hey, go easy with that elderly term, will you please? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, not on your show. <laughs> With long way round. I mean, long way round has been an inspiration for tons of tons of riders, and and I mean, really, I honestly think that that film it really you know kicked it off, kicked off the adventure motorcycle scene. I think without a doubt um, for everyone. And and as much as some people complain about it, I thought I think it's just great. And I think it's just the fact that it inspires so many people. You have to give it credit for for that alone. But um, also there's all the other things. I mean, these guys are doing it in front of a camera, etc. Not to mention, as you said, they're older than you. Although I wouldn't consider them quite older elderly rather in, in that film but um the the people that you talk to or the people that you meet along the way uh do you run is there anybody that, that you run into that's your age that is using a different style of transportation who sort of looks at you and says wow you've opened my eyes now that's what i'm gonna do actually yeah um we had a really cool experience with that um pretty much the exact thing that you're talking about jim when we were in guatemala um, we stayed in the city of, uh, shoot, I forget. Um, we stayed in the city of Cuyo, Guatemala for about a week or yeah. While we were getting our, um, we were getting some just basic maintenance done on the bikes, oil changes and washing the bugs off them and stuff like that. And, um, the guys at the shop, he, who actually invited us to his shop cause he had just saw he, he met us in the street, uh, honestly, like the, the day we rode into town and, um, he, his wife knew somebody in the press there and she asked us if we would be willing to do an interview with them. So we just sort of did a spontaneous, um, 
or uh, uh, I guess it was an online um, newspaper um, interview with them. And and then that evening, that same night, we were walking around town. We'd just gotten done, um, you know, we just gotten done with supper and we were walking around town and this guy came, he rode up to us. Like he stopped us in the, he saw us in the street, turned around and then he rode his motorcycle and like stopped to talk to us. And we weren't sure what was going on. You know, it was just a dark street in Guatemala. Like <laughs> this guy comes up to us. He was, I think he was wearing a, uh, um, he was wearing a YMCA t-shirt. So I was like, wow, maybe this guy's going to like ask us for a donation or something. And then, um, but we, and then, and then he stopped us and he goes, Hey, you guys, um, I saw you guys. And I was like, you know, what are you talking about? And he was speaking Spanish, obviously. Um, but he says, yeah, I watched you guys' interview earlier today. And, um, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like I didn't know anybody to watch that TV show. And he says, you know, like, I, I think that, um, he's like, I think it's really cool what you're doing. And he was, I think he was like 22 years old. He was about the same age as us. And he says, you know, like, I really want to, um, I, I really think it's cool what you're doing. And, and you guys inspired me, you know, like I really want to try and do a trip like that myself one day. He's like, you know, I don't have a really expensive motorcycle or uh, any, any gear like that. Um, cause he was just riding, you know, like a 150 that you find anywhere in South America. Mm-hmm. And he was just inspired. And I could tell that this guy was, he was really going to do what he said. And, um, and that was a really cool experience for, for the both of us, you know, like just to, to, to one inspire somebody, you know, the same age as us to, to go and do something like that. But then also just to have that gratification to actually meet that person. I, I never would have expected that. And I'm really grateful for that experience. It sounds to me like you guys have had some really good um, exchanges with people. You've you've sort of got into the culture through breakdowns and through happenstance, you know, with with your interview, etc. Um, and it didn't sound like to me that that's really something you guys set out to do. Do you find yourself doing that more now? And and how how does traveling with two people change the dynamics? Because I know you've you've both had experiences when you've been by yourself. Yeah, Jim, that's a great question. Um, I think that. You're right. Um, it's, you just, you just kind of become part of the, part of the culture, part of the experience. I mean, especially traveling in by motorcycle, like, like we're doing, um, because you have to, I mean, the people that you talk to every day, the, you know, the places that you stop, the, you know, you're just going to meet people and people are interested in you. And then because I speak Spanish and, you know, I'm able to, we're able to have a dialogue and like learn something about people and learn something about where they're from. And I always like asking people, you know, like, where are you from? And they'll say, you know, I'm from here. And then I'm like, well, what happens here? You know, like it's, it might be a small town to you, but this is the first time I've ever been here. So I'm sure that there's something interesting here that I don't know about, you know? Um, and, and just being able to, you know, just taking the time to communicate with people, I think is, is the biggest part. And, and, um, the more I do, the more, um, the more you learn, the more experiences you have, the more great experiences you have. Like, like Thomas, for instance, when you were having, dealing with your alternator, did it occur to you to worry about your stuff? I mean, you did say you locked stuff up at once, which I just think is, you know, being sensible about stuff, but did you have a nervousness about it or did you feel that, you know, Hey, I'm safe. I mean, with everyone I dealt with, I felt completely safe. Um, However, I, you know, it's, it's a foolish king who doesn't listen to his advisors and the people I was interacting with 
you know, made it clear to me that they thought I should take precautions with my possessions. Mm. Um, so I definitely followed their instructions and were like, you know, took things as seriously as, as, as the situation felt like it called for. Um, I mean, and by locked up my stuff, I just tied it all together. You could still just pick it all up and take it if you felt like it. <laughs> but, but I mean, um, everything has been great though. You, you guys were harassed at one point by, with some, uh, some guy, some, some kids, I guess, or young boys with machetes. I think that was in Guatemala. Yeah. Yeah. That was in Guatemala as well. Um, we were, so we were camping, um, in the jungle or what we thought was the jungle. And then we actually ended up camping near somebody's water reservoir, <laughs> actually just outside of this little village. So we were camping there that night and some of the locals came up and talked to us and, you know, they wanted to know what we were doing, where we were from. I explained to them that we were, we were tired. We were just trying to camp for the night and then we were going to be gone the next morning. So they let us stay. The next morning we rode out of there and, um, I actually got a flat tire as, as we were riding up this crazy dirt road to get out of this village in the jungle. And, yeah, it, um, was, it was like a mudslide more than a dirt road. It looked like a mudslide. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> it was definitely some of the hardest riding that we had done up until that point on the trip. And then I got a flat tire. It was just a nail straight into the back tire, just flattened it. And I was, I was stopped on the side of the road, kind of looking at it. And these boys had, you know, they were walking up the dirt road to get to the highway. And, and that was just where all the locals, you know, it was their little footpath to get up to the highway and then pick up a bus and go into town to go to work or wherever they were going. Um, so there was about like five of them, just young Guatemalan boys. Um, and they were, um, natives. They were, um, uh, Quechua's or Mayans for lack of a better word. And they all spoke Quechua. I think one of them spoke Spanish and maybe another, like maybe another one of them understood Spanish, but they didn't, they didn't, none of them spoke Spanish except for this one. And I, I got the impression that he was the only one who was a fluent Spanish speaker. And he, he was kind of, you know, pushing me in a little bit. Cause he was like, you know, like, what do you guys, what are you guys doing here? You know, you're riding these big motorbikes, and I told him we were from the United States and he was like, oh yeah, you know, you're from the United States. You think you can just ride here and camp wherever you want and, you know, do whatever you want with your, your big expensive motorcycle. And it was, you know, it was, they were all, um, I think pretty amicable. I don't think anybody was, um, behaving in an aggressive manner, but you could tell that they were just kind of annoyed that I was there. And, and with good reason, you know, like we were in their village and we actually had no idea that we were in their village until, you know, we just set up our tents. So that was, that was a sort of an eye-opening experience for, for the both of us. You know, I explained it to Thomas later and, um, just realizing that, um, you know, just because we do mean well and we're, we don't, you know, we don't mean harm to anybody. It doesn't mean that, necessarily uh, we're, we're invited everywhere we go, you know? Um, and you, you know, you do need to be conscious of that and be, be more cautious with that. This obviously didn't sour your, um, feelings towards people who are coming up to you and, and talking to you didn't, to locals. Oh no, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, and, and of course that can happen anywhere. I mean, that could have happened when you were, you when you're back home as well. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's interesting that you have that and you're able to let it go and still go on and enjoy the trip and enjoy meeting people and still being open about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's for every, for every experience we've had, that's been 
even a little bit questionable. There's, you know, 30 or 40 just fantastic. And there's some experiences that we've had that, you know, from the outward perspective, you'd be like, you know, you'd think that there was a, probably a pretty bad situation going on. I mean, we went, uh, we were on this coastal road in Peru and we drive up and we see like 18-ish, 20-ish young men and, and boys with like rocks and sticks and, and clubs and things. Um, and, and they're blocking the highway. And we're like, okay, well, this is pretty interesting. Uh, let, let's go talk to him, you know? So we, we walk up and throw around a little bit of Spanish. I've, you know, buenos dias, you know, like, hola, well, you know, what's going on, you know? And, you know, the, the, there's this yeah, kid. <laughs> there's this kid. He's like 12 years old. He's got like a, like a little piece of wood with a nail sticking out of it. And, and he's sitting there talking to me or trying to talk to me. And I'm just nodding my head and stuff. And, you know, we just... I mean, at least from my perspective, Shane's going to take this story in a second because he was able to speak with him. But at least from my perspective, I mean, being pleasant and amicable and stuff. I mean, we walked up to a roadblock of men with improvised weapons. Mm -hmm. And what happened was we smiling and talking and shaking hands and they all they all just dropped this stuff because it was like, wow, you look kind of silly there holding a rock. Like, what are you going to do with that? You know, like what are what, <laughs> what are you what are you going to do with that nail and that stick there, guy? Like you, you like I'm having a conversation with you, like you know. So it, it, just just with like you know, there's a, there's a certain a certain presence of calm you can use in a situation like that, which really makes any aggressive individual look like a fool, <laughs> and so no one wants to be a fool. But yeah, that was um, it was actually a water strike in, um, Peru. Uh, like Thomas said, they, they, we were riding down this highway and there was sort of like stuff piled up in, in a line in the middle of the road. And, and it's in the middle of the desert. There's no like trees or anything. They just had like rocks basically piled up along the road. And there was a group of about 20 guys. And so we stopped about a hundred yards short of their improvised roadblock. And I was like, you know what, let's just take our helmets off and go and talk to these guys. Let's, you know, see what's going on here. So, so I walked up and just gave them a, you know, like, hello, how are you? Um, my name is Shane. And I started shaking hands with everybody, you know, cause I mean, what's, what's more disarming and, uh, friendly than just walking up and shaking hands, you know, you can't. So, so I, I shook hands with everybody, everybody was standing there, you know, it took the time to just shake hands with everybody. And then I said, you know, um, so what's going on here? We're, we're just riding, you know, we're from the United States. Uh, we were going along this highway and, uh, we wanted to, we wanted to go and see the ocean. That's why we were coming this way instead of on the, on the main road. And this is, this goes back to the, the whole navigation, Jim, like you were asking about earlier. We, we had no reason to be on that road, like none at all. We, it was about like 60 miles out of our way from the main highway and heading South. And I just wanted to see the ocean. So that, that's why we went that way. And then we, so we walked up to this roadblock, you know, I, I talked to the guy who looked like he was in charge and he explained to <laughs> us that they were striking. They, they were from the village a little further down the road and they were, um, and they were protesting because the, the city had cut off their water and they had to pay to get water in their village now. So, um, so they didn't have any water. And I was like, man, that, that's really awful. You know, like, uh, I think everybody needs water. Um, well, would you, would you think about letting us through since, you know, we don't work for the city and we're not really here to, 
we're not here to harm or help you, you know, like, would you mind letting us through? And they were like, yeah, yeah, you guys can go through. There's other roadblocks up ahead, but, you know, you guys can go through here. And then we did. And then we just rode up to the next roadblock and um, gave them a little chat. And we, I let them know that we had gotten through the last roadblock and they said that we were cool. So they they let us on through a little bit easier. And then we we passed through, I think, like four or five of them. Um, with actual people. And then there was just stuff piled up on the road everywhere else. I mean, there was, there was a section of just boulders like pushed out onto the highway and we just had to like kind of weave through them and then keep heading on and uh, broken glass on the road. But uh, you know, I mean, right. well, <laughs> and, and they, they, they had taken the road and protest and what they had done is they'd, I mean, it, they, if you pay the water tax on the road, they'd let you through. So there was a couple of pickup trucks who'd brought out bottles of water um, with them, like like crates of bottled water, and then they'd give them to the protesters, and then they were allowed to go through. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a an overly aggressive thing they were doing. These were just people who needed water. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, the most fundamental of human needs, right there. Yeah. And it, it was just a it was just a water tax. Like they, we need water. You're gonna use this road that goes right next to our village. Like you need to give us water. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, but yeah, there were like probably nine or ten total roadblocks, and some of them were pretty. Some of them, like one of them, was a, a fishing boat with a massive truck that they pulled over the entire highway. Um, some of them were piled up tires that they'd burned. Uh, and then I'll toss the toss the ball back to Shane, but there was like the the major the major place in this roadblock was where the mayor was giving a speech and it was the mayor of the town that had water that was close by or the village that had water that was close by. And there was, I mean, there was a lot of people there. Yeah. So there was, there was this crowd gathered outside the entrance to the village and, and we had to get around them because they were standing in the road. There was the entrance to one side and we, we had to get around them and then on the other road just to, you know, keep on keeping on just keep on going. And, um, so we, we got off the bikes. There was a couple of cars parked out there and we just left the bikes. I mean, we took our helmets with us, but the bikes just kind of unmolested. And, um, and I, you know, I walked up to one of the older looking gentlemen and I said, look, um, like what's going on here? Like, I understand that you guys are, you guys are protesting. Right. And he was like, oh yeah, yeah. So we're, we're protesting. This is the village out here. Um, and that guy, that guy standing in the center there, he's the alcalde, he's the mayor. And, uh, he's giving a speech right now. He's, you know, he's trying to settle this situation. And there was some police there. There was some, um, there was, I think like three or four police vehicles, and then, um, and all the cars from the city were just lined up and parked on the road. So I asked a couple guys, like, do you think that we could get around? You know, we're just riding these motorcycles. We're trying to get, you know, we're trying to keep heading south. And, uh, one or two guys said, yeah, yeah, I don't think anybody would bother you, but we wanted sort of a guarantee that if we got on the motorbikes, we weren't just going to get stoned off of them, you know? So, um, eventually this one big fisherman guy, I mean, he was huge. He was just huge, uh, <laughs> like brown fisherman guy. And he was like, he was like, yeah, you guys, you guys get on those motorbikes and follow me. And we were like, all right, fine. So we followed him and he just kind of like made a way through the crowd he would just walk ahead of us and we would scoot back behind him, you know, a little bit. And then a couple of people started to fuss and we just waved at him. We're like, Hey, look at us. Like, <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not hurting anybody here, you know? And then we just rolled on through the crowd and then 
took off on the other side and just kept rolling. And it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> we just we just rolled on through. So everywhere you guys go where you need help, you end up finding someone who helps you and, and wanting nothing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Essentially, yeah. I mean, if we had rolled up to that, I mean, and the crowd we're describing was probably like 300, 400 people. It was a lot of people. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, if we had rolled up and tried to take, you know, an aggressive stance or tried to, you know, be like, hey, we got to get through here. I mean, that would have been the absolute wrong thing to do. But, you know, instead, when we got there, we, I mean, we took pictures with the people. We let them sit on our bikes. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we were at the road stop with the crowd of people for probably an hour and a half, just, just talking to people, being there, being part of the situation rather than being an external force coming to mess with them. So, you know, and people, people will help you. I mean, if you, if you approach it with, with a calm manner and, and don't try to, you know, don't try to bullnose your way through it, then more, you know, at least in my experience, more often than not, you find someone who's willing to help you. What do you think you guys have learned on this trip that you you didn't know when you left? Wow, that's a great question, Jim. Um, uh, just kind of like a, I don't know, an insight into the human condition. I mean, we've seen, you know, in, in the United States at least, you get, there's a lot of fear involved in the concept of leaving the United States and traveling to other places and visiting other places. And I mean, we, we, we drove through places that are on the top 10 list of worst places to travel in the world, et cetera, et cetera, and have found nothing but hospitality and friendship. Um, you know, you know, and that's, it, it really kind of takes you out of that the news cycle you're familiar with, and at least I was familiar with in the United States of, you know, this terrible thing happening here, this terrible thing happening here and finding that it's, it's, you know, you go to, you go to some places and it's just, just people living their lives and, and being generous and kind and caring and, and just being excellent human beings. Yeah, absolutely. I think Jim, one of the things that I, have really been thinking about lately. And, um, one of the things that I would take away from this trip is, um, you know, traveling through all of Central America and, um, a lot of what you would call second world or third world countries. Um, it was, it was incredible for me to see and then to realize like just how little people live with, and how happy they are, you know, just with what they have. I think as Americans and as Westerners, you know, they always say, you know, we have this perception that more is better, better is more. And, um, you need more stuff. You need a better job. You need to make more money. But people in, you know, people in these countries, in, in these villages that you go through, it, it's just, they don't work really. You know, you maybe make like $7 a day or like $40 a week. And that's, that's just enough. And they, they have a house, they have walls, they don't have like furniture or anything, you know, or sometimes even glass on their windows, but nobody's complaining. Like nobody has a problem with what they don't have. They're just grateful for what they do. And that was, 
you know, it was, it was, it was very humbling for me. It's very humbling for me to see that firsthand. And I think that that's something I'm definitely going to take away from this trip is just realizing that, you know, there are so many people who live with, who live with practically nothing and they are some of the happiest people that I've ever met. And the most generous. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas, what message would you give to somebody in their early 20s about adventure, about doing what you're doing right now? Well, the first thing you need to not do is worry about modifying your bike so much. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you can drive any bike anywhere. And I, I tell you what, it, it, if I could do this whole thing over again, it would be very tempting to just get like a 400 CC Yamaha from like 1984 and buy it for $500 and not change anything on it and drive it until the wheels fall off. I mean, leaving the country was a big deal for me. I hadn't done it in a very long time. I hadn't traveled really before this point. And, you know, it's just a ball of fun. It's a blast. It's often much cheaper than than living in the United States is. (laughs) You know, like, uh, so... I mean, get on whatever vehicle will carry you there or just start walking, you know, and, and, and go check some stuff out. And, you know, if it doesn't work for you, then change it up a little bit and try again. Uh, you don't need a spaceship to get someplace. You don't need a million auxiliary switches and, you know, a, an, an air cush suspension. You just need to go someplace. I, I, guess, I guess that boils down to just go someplace, go see something. <laughs> Yeah, well said for sure. Shane, how about you? Yeah. Um, (laughs) So one thing that I would tell somebody my age um, who was going on a trip like mine is definitely just don't worry about buying all the gear and getting super prepared beforehand because you can worry yourself to death preparing for it and then never go anywhere. So yeah, I would, I would, if I had advice for anybody trying to do a trip like this, it's just get what you have, take everything you have and just go and then figure it out as you go along. You're, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to lose some things. You're going to, you're going to find a lot of, a lot of things that you don't need and, and you're just going to make it work with what you got. Guys, it was great to sit and talk with you. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed your stories. Thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you so much, Jim. (laughs) All right, absolutely. Thanks for having us, Jim. That was Shane Pufel and Thomas McCutcheon hunkered down in Mendoza, Argentina, just waiting for that green light to get back on their bikes and head south. Now, we've got some great photos from their adventure uh, so far, including Shane's crash. You'd be surprised how much damage uh, was done to his bike in that crash, considering that he kept riding it and he is riding it still now. Now, those are in our show notes for this episode on our website at adventureriderradio.com. I just 
just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure appreciate you being a part of it. Thank you very much to Elizabeth Martin, our producer here, works in the background. And don't forget, all of our, our episodes are available everywhere podcasts are found. You can also find the show notes on our website for every episode in there. We've got photographs and links and different things from the episodes that we talk about during the episode. Uh, also, we have our other show, ARR Raw, that comes out once a month. That is also on our website with show notes. And again, that's available anywhere you find podcasts. But remember, you need to subscribe separately for that. We also have our newsletter on the website. If you want to sign up for that, we'd, we'd love it. But hey, I got to put this out here. We need your support. This is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need you now more than ever. Drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button and choose your style of support. We'd love it if you consider being part of our patron team so we can count on that every month to produce the show. Anyway, time to, uh, well, if you can't get out there and ride your bike, I keep saying the thing you ought to do right now is do things in the garage if you can, like to practice. Practice changing your tubes, practice uh, doing your bearings, any other maintenance that you need to do. Check your bike over and look what's wrong. I mean, you know, find things to do with it um, that will sort of inspire you for, for riding. Anyway, my name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Brent Carroll, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>